You're listening to the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu. In this episode, we're going to go over a bunch of different applications that come pre-installed on Slackware, but honestly, most Linux distributions. If you don't have the applications I'm speaking of installed already, you can certainly find them in your software repository. They're very popular common tools for for some people for developers certainly so let's get started we are deep within the bin utils package right now we have covered commands like as and ld in the past so we're picking up in bin utils after elf edit which we covered at the end of the previous episode getting started with gprof or really gprof if you think about what it stands for what does it stand for it, st it stands for gnu profiler so we can get a little bit more information on this by doing an info space gprof gprof and the info pages are quite good uh, the first the introductory paragraph says that this manual describes the GNU profiler, gprof, and how you can use it to determine which parts of a program are taking most of the execution time. So I'll just skip down to the introduction here, the, the proper introduction. It says profiling allows you to learn where your program spent its time and which functions called which other functions while it was executing. This information can show you which pieces of your program are slower than you expected and might be candidates for rewriting to make your program execute faster. It can also tell you which functions are being called more or less op uh, often than you expected. This may help you spot bugs that had otherwise gone unnoticed. So that's kind of, that. that's really, I mean, this brilliant, brilliant documentation here in, in terms of sort of explaining what this thing does. And this is, I think, is, is one of those things about C, C++, GCC, that the whole, this whole suite that we're we're kind of moving around with bin utils is just some of the support stuff is just it's so cool i mean some of this stuff it just lets you introspect so deeply into into some of these these binaries really and it's it's a lot of fun it's it's inordinately fun so in order to, to demonstrate what g prof does it does take quite a bit of setup but before we even do the setup let's just kind of talk about the command itself so g prof i guess i'm just not going to say that the same way twice. So gprof, gprof, whatever. GNU profiler, gprof. The syntax, the, the basic syntax is gprof and then the name of the executable binary that you're working with and then a profile. And the profile is by default called gmon.out, which I guess is GNU monitor.out, I, I would imagine. gmon.out. And in order to get gmon.out, you have to look in the man page of GCC and kind of poke around until you stumble across an option called dash pg. So dash pg generates extra code to write profile information suitable for the analysis program gprof. You must use this option when compiling the source code, the source files you want data about, and you must also use it when um, skipping to the next line. I think I do not know how to get to the other side of this man page quickly. Wow, that is really interesting. Yeah, I don't know how to get back home. Oh, Control A, no. Uh, anyway, it says um, linking, so you have to do this both when you compile and when you link the. The software together. That's not a problem because GCC is is going to do everything for us anyway. Now, the the I did this uh, with a demo Hello World application, and the results were okay. Well, first of all, so a, a literal Hello World application probably isn't enough. It, it, there's not enough going on in that application to generate what I would call a useful Gmon. It, it I think I might have gotten it to produce a Gmon, maybe, um, but in the end, or, or in, in the intermediary step, I added an extra um, function to generate a variable, some, some value, and then I called that function from main just to kind of get some crosstalk going, and that didn't really do a whole lot uh, be, because I wanted, to, I wanted more than just one function because, I mean, part of gprof's self-described purpose is to display what function called what function during the execution of the program. So I wanted a little bit of crosstalk. That that didn't quite generate as much activity as I'd hoped. I did put in a sleep function, or a sleep, um, I, I used sleep, the, the uh, sleep keyword 
a couple of times to try to get it to linger a little bit longer. In other words, didn't really work. I tried an, a, a, a slightly more complex application. Once again, with I had to kind of shoehorn an extra function in there, and I did some getting some user data in and writing some user data out and all that other stuff. It just wasn't really very interesting. So finally, I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll just grab source code for Jove, which is an Emacs-like text editor, and I just remember that the source code is quite clearly laid out. It's a very easy code base to sort of look at and understand, especially if you know the application. So I thought, okay, I'll grab that source code and modify its make file such that when I make Jove, or just make, really, uh, it compiles with the dash pg dash g, so that's the pg for the profiler and dash g for debugging and and i'll run that so i i did that worked fine i guess ran it a couple of times edited some files did everything i could do and it just could not get gmon dot out to be generated it just wouldn't do it for me so what i ended up deciding was that i needed to almost simulate a crash in order to sort of force the application to, to dump the gmon dot out much like you would get a core dump from 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 and you know your system should something go horribly wrong if you have that enabled um so i ended up doing that and here's here's what i did in case you want to emulate exactly what i did um so in the jove source code there is a very obvious delete function it's called delete.c and so i simply went into one of the one of the functions that looked pretty basic to me which is del car d e l underscore car or care because you're deleting a character so uh, at the end of that function i just inserted an exit parenthesis zero parenthesis semicolon just inserted a random exit into the source code and as I said, in the make file, I found the line that sort of triggered the... No, you know what I did, actually? I did the... Um, I didn't find that line. I found the optimization line, which is not really, you know, the right place for it. But yeah, the opt flags, line 196, and added uh, dash capital O, lowercase s, dash PG, dash G. Those were the, the options that I decided to pass through the optimization flags, and not all of those are option optimization flags, but that's fine. And then I executed a make with M-A-K-E, return, oh, it's already made, so I can't do that again, but I could do a make clean and then a make. It runs through the make, the, the build process, it's compiling everything. You can see all of the different things that it's compiling with the dash O-S-P-G-G, and then it links it all together, and you're left with an application called, for whatever reason, jjove. That's J-J-O-V-E. Don't know why there's two J's. I, I don't remember, I don't, re I don't remember that being a thing, but I, I guess it must be. Um, so anyway, jjove now exists. This is, I should, I guess I should say, this is 4.17.3.7 is the version of jove I'm, I'm working with here. So now there's jjove. So this has the debug symbols and the G monitoring, the profile symbols, built in. So this should produce something called a gmon.out. And the way that I triggered that was I started jjove and opened some files, edited some text, saved some some data. So in other words, I actually used the application just a, a little bit. And then I deleted a character and the thing basically crashed. Uh, it sort of took over my terminal. So type in reset, R-E-S-E-T, and hit return and you get your terminal sort of back into a working state and if you do an ls gmon.out you'll find that it now it, it it does exist so file gmon.out it says it is a gnu profile performance data version 1 so your system kind of knows what it is if you do a cat of gmon.out it's a bunch of nonsense that you can't make heads or tails of it that looks like gibberish it's bunch of binary symbols that don't make, mean anything to your terminal or your, to your human eyes. But of course, gprof and then g, no, jjove, or actually I'll just do a dot slash jjove just in case, and then gmon.out. Hit return, and it dumps a bunch of information into your terminal. So you can either pipe that out or rather redirect that out into a separate text file, because it could be, it, it can be quite a lot 
Um, in fact, I think I didn't even run this application for that long. Didn't do a whole lot with it, and it it far exceeded my my terminal my, my yeah terminal line count limit. So you'll you'll want to redirect it in in either real life or even in your demo. But the output is super super cool. Um, so it starts, and actually I guess I'll pipe it to less so I can see. Oh, I meant most since that's what I use, right? That's officially what I use. Most. Uh, it says flat profile, each sample counts as 0.01 seconds, no time accumulated. Uh, percentage time, uh, it's got a bunch of lines counting up to 182, uh, and then not all of the, that's not 182 consolidated lines, it's segments that it's counting. Uh, and it identifies all of the functions, it talks about the percentage of time that each function is, is actually used, it uh, delineates the the um, the average number of milliseconds spent in this function per call. If this function is profiled, um, calls the number of times this function was invoked, and so on. Uh, so you've got a, a list of of yeah, literally every function that was engaged during the time that you spent in your application. So for instance, 26 plus 17 times cycle one as a whole. So 27 dispatch cycle one. 5 ask underscore forward, 2 get any uh, unders underscore mini buff, 2 times do underscore select, 2 times do underscore find, once find file, that was when I was opening a file I imagine, uh, 1035 times do underscore hls put c, and so on. I mean, you can just scroll through, like I said, there's 182 sections, some of them with 8, 9, 5, whatever, different lines within each section, so it's a lot of data, and that's not all of it. Um, if you continue to scroll down, you get another block of, of information, a table describing the call tree of the program, and sorted by the total amount of time spent in each function and, and its children. Each entry in this table consists of several lines. The lines with the index number at the left-hand margin lists the current function, the line above it lists the functions that called this function, and the line below it lists the function this one called. So you get kind of all, all kinds of uh, fun information about what's going on in this application while it's running. And then at the very, very end, you get an index of all the different functions being referenced in the above table. So this one is uh, sorted, I think it's said, by, by how commonly it was used or whatever, but I mean... Uh, just a quick scan through and sort of corroborating with what I see in the above table. It's 182 different functions being listed. So, and actually, I guess if you were to look, you could even look like, okay, let's say I want to know how many times, I want to get like a profile of 100 uh, of file underscore write, right? That that seems like an, a, a good one to, to know about. How, when was I writing data? Well, scan through this list, you find that file write is indexed at 114 so now if I scroll up through my through this table 114 I've got oh it's a good one uh three uh, actually only three times was on was the only amount of time that that was it was called I'm kind of surprised at that but there's a lot of associated um, functions around it as well. Yeah, really interesting stuff. I mean, just, it's a gold mine of analytics. It's really, really cool. And I don't exactly know... Oh yeah, and the top table, that's right, I forgot about that. The top table, or maybe I already mentioned that, but the, there is a, a an initial table that lists all of the function names uh, in order of call frequency. So you get the, the 1035 one, do underscore HLS put C way up at the top and then way down at the bottom with just like one call here and there. There's TTY set adder, set CWD, pop underscore on, patch up, and so on. So um, yeah, you can absolutely kind of see what your application's actually doing. Like you know what you think your application is doing. But I mean, I know that I've written things where, where you know, as you're programming, you think, well, okay, I need to reset this state or, or I need to, I need to check this state. And so you put a check in there or you put a reset in there. And then you're, you're, you're programming a, a, another, a different function. And you think, oh, I better make sure before I do this thing that the state, the state is, you know, whatever in, in, in state foo. It's got to be at foo. 
So you reset it again, or, or you set it to foo, or whatever you're doing. And then later on, uh, there's a, an if statement, and you think, oh, well, I only want to do this if that's if this if this if the state of my application is is foo. So um, yeah, if I if I do the if and then the else, and then I'll just 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 to make sure in the else if I'll in that final clause. I'll set the state to foo just just to make sure that that's where we are, you know. So you're 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 always thinking of of how to avoid a mismatch of what you expect versus uh, what your application actually looks like, and so you've got like these these things three places in your application this call to this one function three times po- possibly just just to open a file or or just to save a file or just to i don't know flip a page whatever your application does and the end result is always the same it is that you are thoroughly in the state that you think you you are in and that's good that's that was the point but then again getting there you've you've done like the same action three times possibly like in a row and that might not not, might not be necessary. It might not be causing a bug, but it's very inefficient. And so seeing that kind of thing here could be really, really useful, especially if, if some of these things actually made sense to us. Like if we knew that the um, id comp function was something that we only needed uh, when we first, I don't know, created a file. I'm just making stuff up. Then if we'd only made one file during our test session and we saw that id comp was called three times then we would know that there's something something's triggering this function more than the more than when we need it to be triggered and we could go investigate that or maybe there is a bug maybe there's a a, a race condition condition happening between two different functions and uh, we might be able to pick that up here because two functions were called when really the, the only one that we needed was was this one foo and not bar but from our analysis from our from our test from a test session we see that foo and bar have been called and and that's that's explaining why the file that we're creating uh, always ends up blank or whatever so um yeah really interesting Interesting stuff, gprof, gprofile, very cool little application. Uh, there are a couple of different options for for uh, how you get the data. There's dash dash brief. In that case, the um, gprof doesn't explain what the what all that data is. So, for instance, once you've used gprof, presumably you wouldn't need reminders about which table is which or what to refer to in order to make the numbers on the left of the first uh, the, the second table make sense. You just know that. So, dash b or dash dash brief eliminates that from your output. Dash dash file dash info gives uh, a summary information about the profile uh, of what whatever you're giving it. So, for instance, if I do gprof dash dash file dash info dot slash jjove gmon dot out then I see that we have one histogram record, uh, 424 call graph records, and zero basic block count records, which I wouldn't have known if I hadn't looked at dash dash file dash info. Uh, let's see, there's dash dash exec dash counts, which causes gprof to print a tally of functions and the number of times each one was called. So once again, just kind of doing that, uh, you get a list of every every function that got every function that got executed exactly like the line where it appears in which file and how many times it was executed it's an amazing it's a little bit i guess kind of like um what was it adder two line in a way it's kind of equating sort of these locations in your executable to where they actually appear in this in, in the source code. So I guess was that adder two line or was that um maybe I'm just thinking of GDB to be honest. Either way, you, you get you get exactly I mean you get the information about the functions, about the things that happened, and where to find them in your in your file, which I imagine must be priceless for when someone's trying to fix a bug on someone else's code. So for instance if I if I felt sh- certain that the bug was happening every time I hit the delete key, then I could I could find that in this output. I could just do a grep dash i delete on this, find the the different times that that was executed. So there's a delete c, delete c, and delete c. So there's three executions total, line 27, 123, and 150. And so I could I could go in and look and and s- see 
you know, what might be related to delete. I mean, Jove source code makes it pretty easy because it, it really is quite well organized, which is why I, why I chose it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that would be super, super helpful, I think, if you didn't know the code, like the back of your hand, if you just didn't, if you didn't know already where all the functions live. And then another one that I thought was useful, I mean, there's a bunch, so I'm not going to go through them all, but there, another one that is useful is the uh, dash dash print dash path, which is dash L, capital L. And this one um, causes there to be a path for for certain functions, and I, I haven't been able to determine from either just experimentation or, or documentation how it decides what to print the path of, because not everything gets a path. But either way, in that final table where it gives you the index of all the function names, f for some of them, it, it tells you it just gives you the path of where those are execute or where those are located rather in in the source in the source code so i'm not sure oh maybe it's just the ones that were actually executed maybe all of these no that doesn't make any sense cuz find file was definitely executed yeah so i don't know um either way there's some extra paths in there which seemed useful to me although i guess it's probably really not quite as useful as the dash capital c the the dash dash exec dash count counts, whatever it is, count or counts, I think counts, plural, um, exec counts, yeah, according to the, the man page. Okay, so that's, that's gprof, and I know I'm not doing it justice because there are a bunch of other options and controls you can, uh, choose to demangle the function names, or the symbols rather, translate them back to function names, and a, a lot more, so just check, check that out if you're not familiar with it, and actually find yourself in need of that level of debugging, I guess. So, um, next up is LDBFD and LDGold, and I'm gonna skip those because we've done linking now. We've done the LD process, and certainly if you wanna step through that, you can listen to couple of different previous episodes, and that'll be fine, but, um, we should, I guess, talk about the at least sort of what this, why these exist, this ld.bfd and ld.gold. So it says the, this is from the documentation, the linker accesses object and archive files using bfd libraries. These libraries allow the linker to use the same routines to operate on object files, whatever the object file format. Different object file format can be supported simply by creating a new bfd backend and adding it to the library. To conserve runtime memory, however, the linker and associated tools are usually configured to support only a subset of the object file formats available. You can also use objdump-i to list all formats available for your configuration. So that's that's BFD, that's what that does. But it kind of demands the question, what does LD Gold refer to then? And the answer to that is uh, that there was a problem with BFD, or or a perceived problem, I guess, uh, and that is that, that BFD had to compromise, as everything does, uh, between efficiency and resources, and it turns out that BFD is a little bit memory, I guess, intensive. You, you, you can use it, it works for most things, but it's, it's gonna eat up your memory, which, you know, for, for the little applications that I personally tend to compile, that's not really that big of a deal, but you get those larger, larger source code sets, and after a while it's, it might actually start to affect you. And, uh, in recognition of this, a, a new format, or a new methodology has been developed, and it's, it's called gold, and so ld.gold is a, a linker that, that is able to use this, this new method, which, uh, in theory, or maybe not in theory. I, for me, it's in theory because I've I've not I haven't compared them myself. Um, but uh, it, it, the the idea is that that gold ld dot gold and the gold system can link uh, code together in a more memory um, friendly fashion, so you don't lose information while you're linking things, which is important. Well, I'm not the best person to talk about any of that stuff, but luckily there's an excellent blog series that covers a bunch of stuff about linking by Ian Lance Taylor on airs.com slash blog slash archives slash 38. This is a series 
uh, from 2007. I'm I'm kind of guessing, uh, and it is just a guess, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's probably mostly still relevant. So if you want to have a good read about linkers and how they work and why they work and what they do, I think that would be, this would be worth a read, and I will definitely link this, link from this in, in the show notes. Uh, but a little snippet from 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 this time, he says, the linker I am now working on, called Gold, uh, will be my third linker, that is. It is exclusively an elf linker. Once again, the goal is speed, in this case being faster than my second linker. That linker has been significantly slowed down over the years by adding support for elf and for shared libraries. This support was patched in rather than being designed in. Future plans for the new linker include support for incremental linking, which is another way of increasing speed. There is an obvious pattern here. Everybody wants linkers to be faster. This is because the job which a linker does is uninteresting. The linker is a speed bump for a developer, a process which takes a relatively long time but adds no real value. So why do we have linkers at all? That brings us to our next topic. And then he goes on about exactly what linkers do. And he says it's simple. A linker converts object files into executables and shared libraries. Let's look at what that means. For cases where a linker is used, the software development process consists of writing program code in some language, like C or C++. A compiler translates this program code, which is human-readable text, into some other form of text known as assembly code. And you, this is Klaatu again saying, you you remember, dear listener, that we did that ourselves with AS. And then he continues and he says, assembly code is a readable form of the machine language which the computer can execute directly. An assembler is used to turn this assembly code into an object file. For completeness, I'll note that some compilers include an assembler internally and produce an object file directly. Either way, this is where things get interesting. In the old days, uh, many programs were complete in themselves. In those days, there was generally no compiler. People wrote directly in assembly, and the assembler actually generated an executable file, which the machine could execute directly. As languages like Fortran and COBOL got started, uh, people began to think in terms of libraries and subroutines, which meant that there had to be some way to run the assembler at two different times and combine the output into a single executable file. This required the assembler to generate a different type of output, which became known as an object file. And a new program was required to combine different object files together into a single executable. The new program, this new program became known as the linker. And that's it. That's, that's his explanation of, of what linkers do. And yeah, go, go read this, this series. It's, uh, it's, it's just really, really enlightening. And, uh, I would just sit here and read the whole thing, honestly. Uh, but I think that would be kind of boring, and it would rob you of the sense of discovery that would would most certainly uh, follow. So I will link to this in the show notes. You can go check it out. I highly recommend it. There are six parts, by the way. That's what you're looking for. It's a six-part series in August 2007. Let's talk now about coffee. Actually, let's do more than talk about it. Let's go get some. We'll come back, and we'll pick up with NM. coffee? You should have coffee. You've had, what, 30 seconds to go get a good cup of coffee for yourself? That should be enough time for anybody, right? I'll assume you've paused and you're back now with coffee as well. So, let's talk NM. I don't know what NM stands for. I could not find reference to what it references, so I cannot say. Numeric mangler? I don't know. It's probably something really obvious, but I'm just not I'm not seeing it. Anyway, NM is a little bit of an introspective application for object files. So it it has it's kind of rotating around or hovering around that same linker domain that I mentioned prior to our coffee break. And I, I don't know how much it's prudent for me to get into what the linkers do, because as I've said, I'm not an expert, and I could sit here and just read the six-part 
essay series on linkers by um, Ian Lance Taylor, but that that wouldn't serve that that wouldn't serve anyone very well because you you should read it yourself and and extrapolate what you understand from it. But what I will say is that a long time ago, and this is all coming from Ian Lance Taylor's blog series. So if don't don't think that I'm don't think that this is something that I've spent years studying. I certainly have not. This is something that I I read in the blog series and am just kind of parroting right now. But linkers, well, so before linkers, long, long ago, there were applications that had, that, that frequently had the same functionality, or rather I should say applications which had in their code functions that very frequently did essentially the same thing as some other code with with a very similar function, or possibly the same function. And it occurred to, to computer scientists that on a computer system, when when there are 30 or 100 processes running, if each of those processes is re-implementing essentially the same function, e- even just partially, it's, it, it might not be the same, this isn't the main function of the application, but there are things that all applications tend to do. And so if if they are all running code t- that performs the same literal function, then that's a waste of memory space. It's a waste of uh, si- CPU cycles, probably. It's it's a waste of a bunch of resources. And so they came up with the idea of a shared library. And shared libraries enable applications to dart out of themselves and implement or, or take advantage of code implemented in in some other application, sort of an independent standing application, if you will, that has code in it to perform common tasks. So in other words, sharing, as it turns out, something that, that the open source world does really, really well, isn't just a cultural statement. It isn't just a um, an efficiency, a question of efficiency during front you know at the at the start of a project when you're actually writing the code it is actually something that benefits the applications as they run now i'm not saying that this is unique to open source because it isn't dll files which we talked about in the previous episode i think or possibly the one before that i think it was the previous one um the dll files do the same thing it's just that they happen to be a little bit less flexible than the format that Linux runs, which is ELF, E-L-F. The DLL files, apparently, you have to compile them differently depending on where you want their code objects to go, whether it's in a global space or otherwise. So, and I, and I know nothing about that. Again, mimicking something that I read online from a from from a source that I believe to be reliable. So, there are these shared libraries, and on on Linux, for for whatever reason, they are um, they're often called object files, and they end in a .o, and they are things that linkers can string together, such that you get an application that exists in a single executable, and yet also depends on other libraries existing or other objects on your computer in order to run correctly which is why on the on the odd occasion you might find um you know if you're if you're I don't, I don't actually remember any of the circumstances under which this happened but i know it's happened here's an idea here's here's a here's an instance i was one time compiling inkscape or installing inkscape and i don't remember exactly what the circumstance was but there was a missing i think it was a lib poplar f- uh, library and it it was it wasn't missing it was just like the wrong version it was too old or something and so i i got an error about there being an incompatibility with whatever lib poplar i had installed i updated lib poplar and inkscape continued or, or started working uh similar similar things might happen with lib png i've had problems with that before lib png there were there was apparently for a while uh, a very a sort of a legacy edition of lib png which was working with, I don't know, let's just say GIMP, because GIMP for a while was, was getting pretty old in, in the, pretty long in the tooth, as they say. So let's say, say it was working with GIMP, but uh, let's just randomly again just say, um, I've forgotten the name of the thing that I was about to randomly say, so we'll just pick on Inkscape again. Let's say Inkscape, for whatever reason, wanted the more recent version of LibPNG. And so there was a, a an incongruity in the object files that they were, when executed, that they were sort of reaching out to find. One wanted 
one one version, another one wanted a different version, and and you can fix that. There are ways to fix it. You can compile things with different names, and and as long as the application knows where what the new name is, then you can kind of hack around that. You can uh, statically link things. You can symlink things to trick an application. That's usually considered not a great way to solve the problem, but it does sometimes work. So you can do that. There are dependencies are all over on the system. And generally speaking, it just kind of all works out. Now, what these object files contain are symbols. Or actually, I should say that they contain symbols, um, relocations, and uh, something else. I forget what the other thing that a symbol or that, that a uh, object file contains is called. But so there are different components to an object file, and all of these things are are pretty much arbitrarily named. This is just stuff that computer scientists came up with when they were trying to design a better system uh, back in the, like, we're talking about System 4 days, you know, this. so in other words, not System 5, SysV and it, that SysV thing, not that one, something older than that, um, and it, in fact, apparently more like Sun OS 4, um, started pioneering really, really flexible shared library formats. So these things started to um, to become used and there was a there was a need to then link different um, different code that was stored in in various different address spaces. And we've already talked a little bit about adder to line and this is kind of related in a way in M is a little bit related in the fact that you can view well let's see what it says itself. GNU NM this is from the man page, lists the symbols from object files, obj file, so you have to give it an obj file. If no object files are listed as arguments, nm assumes the file a.out. And then for each symbol, nm shows the symbol value in the radix, radix, selected by options, see below, or hexadecimal by default. I have no idea. This is the first time I've ever encountered the word radix. R-A-D-I-X, radix, what does that stand for? Or what? rather, what does that mean? It is the base of a number system or a logarithm, the primary source. Fascinating. Did not know that. I have learned something mathematical today. So um, so it shows the, the symbol value in some number format, hexadecimal by default. Uh, the symbol type, and that's um, a single letter abbreviation. There are quite a few of them. And then the symbol name. So the, the, the really sort of easy beginner level use case of nm is to find an object file which i happen to have here in this jove directory that i was using for the g profiler the gnu profiler so i'll just pick one at random or actually not at random i'm gonna pick delete.o because that's the one that i've kind of been focusing on anyway just by chance um so i'm gonna do nm delete.o and then I'll pipe that out to most, so because it's going to be a long list. And yeah, it is actually. You know what? In, in, I'm even going to. I'm just curious now. I'm going to pipe it out to wc-l. So word count, but count the lines instead. And that's 59. That's actually not as many as I thought, but it's it's a good chunk. It's it's two screenfuls, or or maybe a screenful and a half, but whatever. Okay, maybe a screenful and three lines. Still, it went off my screen. So the first symbol that it tells me about is zero 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 and then zero zero a four this is classified by it as a lowercase t so if we look at our little index here in the man page it looks like a lowercase t is telling me that the symbol is in the text that is the code section. It is called add kill ring. Now the next one is capital U and it is arg underscore count. The capital U symbol says that it is undefined. That's the symbol is undefined when it's a capital U. Arg underscore count sounds sort of like one of those hyper global language features to me, but maybe not. Uh, another one, u backward, u b underscore car, and so on. It goes on like that for a while. Next one is 
zero zero, lots of zeros, and then ending in six one seven. Um, this one is a capital T, not a lowercase t, but a capital T, and it's called copy region. So if I look at my index here, uh, actually capital T and lowercase t apparently mean the same thing. It's odd that they would use one and the other in the same listing, but that's what it says. Okay. Uh, here's another, that, I mean, you know, it goes on for a while, like I said, 59 lines of this. And then finally we get down here to 080, which is a C, capital C it looks like, kill buff. And it says the capital C uh, notation means that the symbol is common. Common symbols are uninitialized data. When linking, multiple common symbols may appear with the same name. If the symbol is defined anywhere, the common symbols are treated as undefined references. There's a B here, that's the symbol is in an uninitialized data section, known as BSS. That's kill PTR, and so on. That's it. That's a bunch of different functions, 59 of them. Some of them with symbols, some of them I guess must be inherited from, or, oh no, the un uncommon ones, I guess, or the undefined ones, rather. Don't get, they don't have the notation of the, the symbol, uh, the symbol's value. It's undefined. That kind of makes sense. And that's... That's in M. That is what it does. Now you can, uh, there are a couple of different options for it, of course. You can do things like nm-print-file-name, and this prints the file to which the symbol value and uh, the classification and the name belong. Now, in this case, that's not super useful because I'm just I, I'm just passing delete.o to it. But if, for instance, I said curly brace delete comma uh, insert curly brace dot o, then oh, apparently I misspelled insert insert. There we go. So now I've got quite a lot quite a lot more listings here and. Each one is labeled with either delete or insert, depending on which file it came from. So that's a that seems like it would be useful for those batch those batch jobs that you might do. Uh, dash capital B or dash dash format equals BSD prints it out in different uh, format that I guess must must be familiar to, to people who who are used to BSD uh, and apparently MIPS because MIPS in M apparently uses that format. I actually didn't try it. Maybe I should try it just for fun. Dash capital B. Doesn't look all that different to me, but maybe I'm missing some subtlety. I don't know. Um, there's a numeric sort. You can sort symbols numerically by their addresses rather than alphabetically by their names. You can do dash dash no dash sort. Do not bother to sort the symbols in any order. Just print them when they're encountered. Reverse sort. And then, of course, the dash dash radix equals radix. So use radix as the radix for printing the symbol values. It must be D for decimal. O for octal, X for hexadecimal. So once again, I can do um, radix equals, I guess I'll do, because we, we already did um, hexadecimal supposedly, I think. So we could also do, uh, let's just do, for instance, dash D for decimal. And then I get very similar output, but the, the numbers are noticeably different. The, the first value, instead of going to A4, for instance, just it's 164 with a bunch of leading zeros and so on, so the, the, the values look different. And I've actually encountered a case where I had to convert from octal to hexadecimal, or vice versa, I don't remember which. I don't remember why either, but I do remember that being a thing that I had to do one time, so kind of nice when a, an application gives that conversion for free. That's, that's quite convenient. Now, of course, the, the missing component here really is a practical use case uh, from from me, I mean. Um, I don't know that, I, I don't believe that it's in M's burden to explain how one might use this. I mean, I guess that would be a nice feature, but I don't, I don't think that that's uh, a must. Um, I I can, I'll fall back on saying, oh, well, it must be nice for debugging. And, and realistically, Maybe that is what it's geared towards. Maybe that's the only time you would realistically absolutely need to know the a symbol's value. But it's there, nm, as in November, Mike, nm, name of your object file, pipe it through something that you can look at it through, and you've got a lot of information at your fingertips. Let's now look at objcopy. That's O-B-J copy, all spelled out, copy. O-B-J copy, one string. It 
copies and translates object file. It copies the contents of one object file to another. Objcopy uses the GNU BFD library to read and write object files. It can write the destination object file in a format different from that of the source form object file. And that is obviously, or I would I would say that is the obvious advantage of something, for instance, like objcopy instead of just copy. The exact behavior of objcopy is controlled by command line options. Note that objcopy should be able to copy a fully linked file between any two formats. However, copying a relocatable object file between any two formats may not work as expected. That kind of makes you wonder what a relocatable uh, file or a relocatable object file is, and that is somewhat explained again in this brilliant blog post about linkers from Ian Lance Taylor on airs.com, A-I-R-S.com, in the August 2007 section. Uh, and he says, Position-independent code calls non-static functions through the procedure linkage table. That's the PLT. The PLT does not exist in .o files. In a .o file, use of the PLT is indicated by a special relocation. When the program linker processes such a relocation, it will create an entry in the PLT. It adjusts the instruction such that it becomes a PC-relative call to the PLT entry. PC-relative calls are inherently position-independent, and thus do not require a relocation entry themselves. So I think that kind of gives you an idea of what a relocatable, of what relocatable, of what relocation, I guess, sort of means for a shared object. If you move a shared object and it has placeholders for other objects on the file system, that could become tricky. And objcopy can resolve those placeholders. It can it can figure out, it can remap things across even file formats. At least that's what I get from what I read. So objcopy is relatively straightforward, lots of different options, but I mean, in theory, the, the idea is that I should be able to provide object copy with a source file or an in file and then an out file and end up with a an equally functional object file. But possibly more importantly, you get extra features that certainly a copy wouldn't provide, such as the ability to strip out debugging symbols that you decide that you don't need anymore. So that's the dash capital S strip all. It says, do not copy relocation and symbol information from the source file. Well, I'm pretty sure I compiled all of that stuff in to into these object files, so I'm gonna grab that delete.o file, but with the dash dash strip dash all option, and I'll copy it to some object called foo.o. Now if I do a SHA sum, for instance, dash a256 foo.o, I get one value, and do the same thing on delete.o, and I get a different value. And I imagine if I did an ls dash l on delete.o, I'd get 28,880 bytes, but on foo.o, I get 3,600 bytes. So obviously got rid of a lot of excess information, or or rather information that I, I've decided I don't need anymore, because specifically uh, strip all does the relocation and symbol information from the source file. Uh, if I want to strip the debug uh, symbols, it would be pretty similar, but instead of strip all, it's just strip dash debug, so I'll, I'll do it to the same the same place. SHA sum again on just foo.o, different value than delete.o, and then once again if I do an ls dash l on foo.o I get 9,960 bytes, whereas again the originating object file 28,880 or something like that. You can also do dash dash strip dash unneeded. You can also do dash dash keep dash symbol such that when you are stripping symbols out with the strip all option, you can keep a specific symbol according to its symbol name. So you would do dash dash keep dash symbol equals and then the symbol name or just dash capital K symbol name, even if it would normally be stripped. So if for some reason you're you're trying to narrow in on, on one symbol name or something like that, or you need to keep that around for some other process, you, you don't have to strip that, you can keep that in the file. And there's, uh, a, I don't know, another half dozen options around that kind of operation that obviously you would not get in a copy, you wouldn't get in an install, this is a specific 
feature of object copy. But that hasn't even touched on the the feature that it sort of opened with. It's 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 man page says. Can I quote? Yes, I can. Copies contents of object files to another. Uses BFD library to read and write object files. It can write the destination object file in a format different from that of the source object file. That's a really big deal if you think about how easy that sounds. So uh, according to the man page, we're, we're meant to do an object copy and then an option to set the output format and then the source and then the destination file. So the the option that we're looking for is, I don't know why I'm trying to actually find it in the man page. It just seems like something I should have in front of me, but I don't actually need it because I, I remember what it is. It's output target. Um, anyway, I don't know where the output target is, but there's a bunch of different related options. One is dash dash target, which applies to both the input and output. One is input dash target, which tells object copy what to treat your input file as. And then there's dash dash output dash target, which just affects the output uh, target. So the way that you define your target is through the BFD library, which is the thing that we were talking about earlier, the LDBFD. That's this this templating system, let's call it, that has been developed in order to define how th how information should be ordered for specific uh, architectures and 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 systems. So, BFD targets. How do we know what they are? What do we know how do we know what's available to us and so on and so on. Oh, and one one important one important note is here, I think I've already read it, but I might as well reiterate it, that it can't do a translation between Indianness. So if it's big Indian to start with, it can't convert it over to little Indian. Oh, I didn't read that. So it says, note, ObjCopy is not able to change the Indianness of its input files. If the input format has an Indianness, some formats don't. ObjCopy can only copy the inputs into the file formats that have the same Indianness, or which has no Indianness. So that is something just to be aware of. So anyway, how do we know what we have available to us? Well, that comes to us in the form of the next command, objdump. So we'll, we'll talk more maybe about objdump after this, but for now, the, the the command that we want, maybe we should, maybe I should open up the man page real quick. It's dash i, dash lowercase i, or dash dash info. And that displays a list showing all architectures and object formats available for specification. And it's talking about specification of, of its own, of, of other options for object dump. But for right now, all we need to know is that dash dash info is kind of like the list formats option in FFmpeg. That gives me a lot of information here. Scrolling up, it says BFD header file version 2.26.2016.0125, and it lists a bunch of different BFD types, names, such as elf64-x86-64. It says that's a header, little Indian, data, little Indian, i386. elf32-i386, header, little Indian, Data little Indian, and so on. It it does that for a a, a lot. It it lists that in in a couple of different formats too. So at the, down at the bottom of the output, there's a nice little chart almost. And I'm gonna just select one relatively at random. Um, elf 32-x86-64. That seems like a safe bet for me. So we'll go back over here to my other terminal, and. Uh, we'll do object copy dash dash output dash target equals and then paste that in elf32 dash x86 dash 64. The source is going to be that delete.o object file again. The destination is going to be a new foo.o file. Seems like it's successful. And we'll just do sort of a file on delete.o. Tells me that the original file was elf64 bit lsb relocatable x8664 version 1 with debug info not stripped. Do the same thing but for foo.o and it's a little bit different elf32 bit lsb relocatable x86 64 and so on and so on. So I have just copied a elf64 object file to elf32 
32-x86-64. But what about really taking it to the extreme and trying to copy an object file from, say, 32-bit to 64-bit, or, or vice versa, whatever. Well, in, in that case, uh, to get that kind of cross-functionality, I'm going to have to open up a new console, a new uh, terminal tab here, and I'm going to invoke a little script, source a little script written by Alien Bob, a Slackware contributor of some renown, and that is slash etsy slash profile dot d32 dev.sh. All this script does is, well, it changes my prompt, which is quite nice. So it tells me that I'm in 32-bit mode now. So it just sets some sh some, some variables in my shell to, to leverage the multi-lib system that I have installed specially on my Slackware workstation. That's not by nature. By nature, Slackware is either pure 32-bit or pure 64-bit. For a very long time, I ran that way, and just kind of recently, for maximum flexibility, I've started to integrate multi-lib capability. Generally speaking, it's not really something I take notice of either way, but there are, I guess, some edge cases where I might want to compile something specifically in as, a, as if though my machine were 32-bit, not 64-bit speaking in 32-bit, but actually 32-bit. So for instance, with these, in this environment, I can type arch and I get x86-64. Um, I thought that reported something different. Why did I think that? Maybe some other command that I was thinking of. No, apparently not. Okay, wh whatever. Oh, I know what it was. It's the i386 command, which is different. That 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 was what I was thinking of. Um, but this, this shell environment, for instance, I could do echo, dollar sign, capital C, capital C, to get my compiler. Uh, that wasn't as exciting as I'd hoped either, actually, but I can make it exciting by doing which, backtick, echo, dollar sign, cc, backtick. And I see that my compiler, my default compiler, because of the, the because of the environment that I'm in right now, is set to slash user bin 32, GCC, not user bin GCC. So, in other words, my toolchain has become 32-bit friendly, or centric, you might even say. So what I'll do, I'm, I'm not going to use the delete.o library at this point, the object file, because I feel like working on something that, experimenting around with something that has been designed to break is probably not the best of ideas. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to, in my 32-bit environment, I'm going to do a make clean first to make sure that everything's clean cleared out, it is, and then just a make. And so now I have 32-bit libraries. So for instance, arg count.o file on that. I get lsb relocatable, intel 80, 386, and so on. So that that's correct. Now I'm going to switch back over to my 64-bit environment, and I'm going to do an obj copy of, no, dash dash output dash target first equals elf 64 dash x86 dash 6.4, and I'm going to do that to argcount.o, and I'm going to put that into staging, which is a directory that I've just created, staging. Okay, so I've got a copy now. I should have a copy. I guess I'll double check. File staging slash argcount.o. This has now been converted to an ELF 64-bit LSB relocatable x86-64. So now, again, within my 64-bit environment, I'm going to do a make clean, so that clears everything out, and then I'm going to do a make Again, so everything's regenerated. And I'm going to intentionally remove jjov and argcount.o. And then I'm going to obj-copy uh, again staging argcount into my current directory argcount.o. So I've, I've thrown out the one that was natively compiled as 64-bit, and I've swapped it with the one that I've converted to 64-bit. So now, in theory, I should be able to make jjov, that's a target, uh, and it, it, it runs quickly, it, it, it makes the, the target jjove. Dot slash jjove runs as expected, crashes as expected when I try to delete because I've never cleared out that, that one thing, but it, it, it does work as long as I don't, as long as I don't delete anything, it, it works. And even if it does, if I do delete something, I think it is technically fair to say that it works as expected, which is not well, but it does work. Yes, I can save files out, and I can do all manner of things. Can I start it with an argument? Yes, I can. I can successfully start it by passing an argument to, to Joe. So that is, um, that's obj copy, and that is obj copying to a different BFD target, which you have to admit is kind of cool. Okay, finally, finally, I didn't realize how late it was getting, um, 
the finally the the thing we should talk about i guess is object dump just because it is here it's it's next in line and then we'll be through with the o's and we can start with ran ran lib next time we we do this uh so object dump is it's another sort of um introspect kind of command. So, for instance, if you want to view information about one or more object files, objdump is the place that you're probably going to turn to. So, for instance, let's say you're not really sure that uh, of what the, um, of whether something is an archive, then you can do objdump dash dash archive dash header and view the archive header information if, if that exists for that particular thing. You can do dash dash demangle, which we've seen in other applications, in related applications. Um, some option is required. So if you do nothing, just objdump delete.o, for instance, or arg account.o, it, it gives you an error and tells you politely that at least one of one one option must be given. See all dash headers. Let's do that. Arg count.o. I could do what's the, oh dash r relocatable. Uh, and then, of course, dash dash info, which shows you all of your BFD targets. You can specify your targets, again, so if there's an input file and you don't believe that objdump is going to be able to ascertain what, what target it is reading, you can specify that yourself by dash dash target equals and then the BFD name. You can set offsets and, and view the data in many, many different ways. You could also just view it by section. Um, so, for instance, if you do a, what is it, dash S for section, I know that one, dash dash section. And then the other one is a dash J. I don't remember what that stands for or denotes. It's something about like zeroing in on a section. I don't see it in the help menu at all. Not weird. Okay, so I guess I'll go to the man page and do a search. Oh, dash dash section. That's what the dash J stands for. Dash S is full contents. Okay, my mistake. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll do obj dump dash dash full dash contents dash dash section equals we'll do a dot eh underscore frame which is just something completely random it was just the, the last section that i pulled or that i happened to see in the output of of the previous command and then arg count dot o because that's what i was looking at earlier and i get just the well i get the full contents first of all so that's almost um It'll look familiar if you recall the episodes that we did on hex dump, that sort of thing. You're, you're getting that kind of information uh, in your terminal, but uh, specifically of just the section .eh underscore frame. So that's, um, that's what that does. That is objdump. It's great for looking inside of object files for information that you might need. And again, uh, I, I'm just you know, I'm woefully ill-equipped here to really come up with a valid use case because this just is not the world that I live in. I'm, I'm, I do not forensically inspect object files for most of the day. That is not something that I'm normally doing. So don't have really any helpful or useful example on, on why you would be doing that. All I'm saying is that that's the command that you would use if you wanted to do that. And I think we're at the end. I think we have to be at the end just because we're we're out of time. I am out of time. So that's objdump, objcopy, nm, bunch of great little commands for looking around, poking around at binary files that normally would just kind of seem like blobs. And this this gives you so much information. Of course, remember that for the greatest amount of information, you need those, well, at least the dash G flag, but quite potentially dot, uh, dash PG for, for greater flexibility. So keep that in mind. It's, this isn't necessarily something that's going to be as useful with something that you don't have full access to, to all of the, to, to all of the source code with. Um, that said, it's always fun to run this stuff on things that you don't have necessarily all the source code lying around for. Kind of interesting to see what you can see. So in terms of, uh, shall we say reverse engineering, that can be kind of, kind of fun sometimes. So poke around, see what you find. You, you never know. It's really, it's really quite fascinating what you can tell. There were some programs uh, at a former job that I had that it was the the programs were um, they were delivered to the to the workers to the workstations not 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 off the shelf it wasn't we didn't com do the compiling and it wasn't heavily changed or adapted but there was a working relationship between. Uh, the programmers and the the vendor of this application, and so uh, very frequently 
some really interesting flags were left in the builds, and you could see all kinds of interesting information from from if if you looked for it, and that was always fascinating. Didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but it was interesting to to kind of just like I say, just poke around really, see what you can see. So that's um, something to keep in mind next time you come across some non-open binary. Run it through some of these tools, see what happens. You never know. Okay, that's about all I have for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.